Turning your Bibles, please, to Luke 24. Luke chapter 24 will begin. Uh, oh, one moment here. My. Just a moment. Sorry about that. There we go. Uh, we'll begin here in a moment in verse uh, 23. Luke 24, uh, not 23, 13. Beginning in a moment in verse 13. Before reading this text, I, I want to explain a few things about it. Um, then we can read it in an uninterrupted way. Uh, it is an enduring uh, account, uh, not enduring, an endearing account of an encounter with Jesus. And for that reason, it's a favorite of many people. And so I wish to not disrupt the flow of the story by explaining along the way. And yet there is some explanation that will help us understand. So if you're a note taker, get your pen ready now even. So let's look down through this, think about a few of the technical, historical, and linguistic issues, and then come back and read it in its whole. Verse 13 is going to introduce us to two unnamed disciples. They are unnamed initially. We will eventually learn that one of them is Cleopas. These two disciples are with a lowercase d. They are not part of the twelve. And that will matter a little bit as the story unfolds. Some would argue that since Cleopas is named and Luke tends to like to name his sources of information, he, he tells us in his introduction to his gospel that he researched these things. Some have said that Cleopas may very well be Luke's source of this story. Whether or not that's true, nevertheless, we have them walking away from Jerusalem and Jesus overtaking them and engaging them in conversation. Their destination is the village of Emmaus, and sadly, it's lost to history. We don't know where it was. Now, verse 13 mentions that very day. That very day is not lost to history. Rather, that very day is the very first Easter. This is Resurrection Sunday. These events occur on the afternoon and into the evening when Jesus arose from the dead. That information will uh, fill in some of the other details for us. For example, in verses 14, 17, and 18, the, they all make reference to unspecified, unnamed events that are occurring. But now that we understand that this is the day of the resurrection, those events become clearer to us. These are the famous happenings surrounding the re re uh, resurrection story. The empty tomb, the angel's declaration that he is alive, the testimony of the women, the tomb visit by Peter and John, etc. Verse 16, verse 16 is particularly important for interpreting this passage. In it, Luke Right, speaking of the two disciples we're about to encounter, he says, their eyes were kept from recognizing Jesus. That particular grammatical construction is what's known as a passive construction. This is a passive sentence. This is common in the New Testament, and almost always when we have a passive construction, the assumption underlying it is that God is the subject. God is the one doing the action. Scholars will refer to these as divine passives. That's interesting. For the implication is that God is keeping them from recognizing Jesus. 
And that's going to matter to how we understand this story. For if this story was simply about two people who could testify to the resurrected Jesus, then there'd be no need to keep them from recognizing him. And in fact, that purpose would be better served if they did recognize him right away. So something more is going on in this story than just simply an attestation to the resurrection. These two are kept in the dark. Speaking of them being in the dark, we will notice the story unfolds against the backdrop of the coming darkness of the day. Evening falls as the story goes on. As the light, the spiritual light, will dawn on these two disciples, it does so against a backdrop of darkness. Can anyone say symbolism? This is a significant aspect of the story. Why do I say that they're spiritually dark? Look at verse 19. The two disciples are describing Jesus to Jesus, ironically, and they describe him as a prophet, mighty in deed and word. Now, this is technically true, but referring to Jesus as a prophet is a bit like calling the USS Gerald Ford, the world's largest and most technologically advanced aircraft carrier, a boat. It misses, it reveals their failure to fully understand who Jesus is. And related to their lack of understanding, when we get down to verse 21, note the past tense verb usage. We had hoped. We'll come back around to that some more later. A couple of more, couple more technical notes, and then we will get into this text. Verse 27 it's an important, critically important verse, but many will overstate its meaning. We don't want to do that. We want to handle God's word uh, rightly and responsibly. Uh, responsibly. I, I'm not going to say more on that. There is an insert in the bulletin that develops that more fully. I encourage you to take a look at that later. A couple more comments. Look at verses 29, 30, and 31. 29, 30, and 31. The details in those verses are meant to link you back to the feeding of the 5,000. So first, the day is fading in verse 30, as it was when the disciples approached Jesus about feeding that huge crowd. Second, the verbal sequence in verse 31 of took, blessed, broke, gave, is the same as the feeding of the 5,000. Finally, just as in the feeding of the 5,000 served as a, what we call it, a meal reveal, it was following the feeding of the 5,000 that Peter makes his famous declaration, you are the Christ of God. So this meal is going to reveal Jesus to these two disciples. So the fading day, the pattern of the, of the uh, verbs, and the, the revelation of Jesus as the Christ all of these things should link us back to the feeding of the 5,000. So there's the kind of the technical and the setting issues to help us understand the story. With that background now, let's consider this truly, uh, for lack of a better word, I'm going to call it a charming story, a story that pulls us in as these ordinary Christians have this extraordinary experience. Let's hear now the word of God from Luke 24. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. 
And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And so beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. Let's pray. Lord, reveal to us the lessons of this text. Reveal to us yourself, even as you revealed yourself to these two. And let us rightly understand who you are, what you've accomplished, and what you will yet accomplish. And in understanding these things, Help us to glorify you and enjoy you. We pray this in you. Amen. It was in 1882 1882, that German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche declared God is dead. And while it took a little longer for us here on this side of the pond than it took in Western Europe, Nevertheless, following Nietzsche's lead, America is fast becoming a post-Christian country. We are living in a time which is increasingly post-Jesus. Jesus, whoever he may have been back then, is dead today. As a result, Christianity is increasingly viewed as an antiquated, outdated religion, 
which is quaint at its best and downright dangerous at its worst. In 2021, a Pew Research Institute survey found that 29% of Americans listed themselves as nuns when they were asked about their religious affiliation. To what religion are you affiliated? None. And since the overwhelming majority of those who declare themselves to be nuns are young, and the overwhelming majority of those who declare themselves to be Christian are older, in the next two decades, that percentage is going to skyrocket. God is dead in America. Or at least he is on life support with a long line of volunteers ready to pull the plug. So how do you minister to those who live in a post-Christian, post-Jesus, God is dead society? Well, how did Jesus minister to these two who feared God was dead? There's a lot here. But I want us to look at four questions. Three what questions and one how question. I want us to consider four questions from this text and how they are answered in it. Three what questions. What did Jesus come to do? What does that have to do with the resurrection? What will resurrection even be like? Those are the three what questions. And the one how question, how do we share this truth with others? How do we share this truth in a God is dead, post-Jesus culture? What question number one? What did Jesus come to do? There's a church here in town, not far from where I live, which on its marquee out front has the following, and I quote, Continuing the work of Jesus peacefully, simply, together. Continuing the work of Jesus. What does that mean? What does it mean to continue the work of Jesus? Now, to be sure, if we are going to be authentic, true disciples, that's what we ought to be doing. A disciple is a follower. A disciple is a student of, one who learns from. If we're to be disciples of Jesus, then we must continue the work of Jesus. But it begs the question, what did Jesus come to do? And it's interesting that here we have in this account two uh, disciples who followed Jesus literally, physically, while he was on earth. And they're confused about what he came to do. Verse 21, we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Now, let's remember that Luke's gospel is the first of a two-volume work that Luke wrote. Luke writes about the founding of the Christian faith in two works. His gospel, the account of the work of Jesus, and his acts of the apostles. And it's really interesting that as he closes his gospel with these two disciples confused, bewildered, disappointed, we had hoped 
that he was the one to redeem Israel. He opens his second volume in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, and you can look there if you'd like to. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, we're reading in Acts 1 about how the disciples came together. It kind of overlaps what we're going to read here in a few minutes, the close of the Gospel of Luke. And the disciples turn to Jesus and ask him this question, Lord, will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus' closest followers were confused about what Jesus came to do. And that led to the disappointment we see in these two disciples. We must not be confused on this point. Jesus' redemption was not redemption from Rome. It was not political redemption. That's what they were looking for. It was not an earthly power or earthly clout that Jesus offered. Jesus had not come to redeem Israel from Rome. What did the angel tell Joseph? You shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he shall save his people from their sins. Not he's going to save his people from Rome. When the hope of Christ becomes a here and now hope only, then hope is lost. Let me say that again. When the hope of Christ becomes a here and now hope only, then hope is lost. And by the way, that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. If we have hope in Christ only for this life, we are to be pitied above all men. When Christ becomes a here and now thing, we're in trouble. We rightly decry in this church the false health and wealth gospel, which makes Jesus all about giving you your best life now. We should reject that. We rightly reject the liberation gospel, which makes Jesus all about freedom from outside oppression. And we are correct to stand against the liberal church and its gospel of fixing poverty and bringing peace now in this world only. But sadly, many of us on the conservative, evangelical, political right still embrace a here-and-now gospel hope. We are hoping that the Supreme Court, the Republican Party, or maybe Fox News, can take this country back to its supposed Christian roots. We have this wrong-headed idea that the true power of Christianity will play out when there are Christians in D.C., If we could just get the right president in power, we hope. But a veneer of Christianity in leadership is not what we need. If you believe that a veneer of Christianity in leadership is going to solve our problems, then you need to read the book of Isaiah, in which a faithful King Hezekiah presides over a nation headed toward destruction. The power of Christ, the hope of the gospel of Christ, is not about 
being in positions of power here on this earth now. These two disciples said we had hoped, past tense, as if their hope was lost. They're disappointed. When you drive away from the McWindow and find your large fry box is only half full, you're disappointed. And justifiably so. Your reasonable expectations were not met. But more often than not, disappointment is not a function of reasonable expectations not being met. Typically, it's a function of unreasonable or inappropriate expectations. The young couple who become disappointed with one another, it's almost always because they had wrong expectations of each other. You see, the problem we have, the reason we tend to be disappointed with Jesus is that we have a wrong view and a wrong set of expectations. Like these two on the road to Emmaus, much of our world's disappointment is because of its flawed expectations. And you and I, the church in America, we must get right on this issue. Jesus did not come, past tense, to eliminate poverty. He did not come, past tense, to abolish racism. He was not incarnate to save the planet. He did not come to give political power to his followers. Now, to be sure, he will come and accomplish every single one of those things. But that hope can only be realized in the proper course of time. Christianity loses its power to heal and to save when everyone is disappointed with it because we promised all the wrong things. Jesus is not the immediate cure for what bothers us. So what did Jesus come to do? The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What have we seen in this sermon series? The Son of Man came to eat with sinners and tax collectors and so be identified with them so that they could be identified with him. When we come to this table, we identify with him and he with us. He came to save people, not from Rome, but from sin. They saw Rome as the principal threat to their well-being. God sees sin as the archenemy. To serve this post-Jesus world, we have to be clear on what it is Jesus came to do. Jesus came to live out the perfect human life, his active obedience and then to let fall on him all the wrath of God against sinners, his passive obedience. And in doing these two things, it was his goal and his purpose to take God's vengeful glare off from us and to put it on himself so that God would look kindly and lovingly on us by eating with us and meeting with us and letting us identify with him at table, he identified with us 
and God made him pay for it. So we wouldn't have to. With the wrath of God poured out on him and satisfied, all those other things, world peace, planet preservation, eradication of poverty, destruction of racism, all of those things will be wiped out. That's why he's coming back, but that's not why he came. You see, in the final analysis, Jesus did not come to address all the things that are bothering you. He came to address the thing bothering God. Sin. What did Jesus come to do? If you and I cannot get that right, we will, like these two on the road to Emmaus, be disappointed and hopeless. Jesus came to overcome sin and to pay the price for it. Our question number two, our what question number two, what does that have to do with the resurrection? Why is it necessary that this story play out in the context of a risen Jesus? If Jesus came to redeem people from sin, so what? What does that mean? Well, in short, it means this, life after death. The encounter here is with the risen Jesus, and that's not for nothing. Jesus' defeat of sin leads directly to his defeat of death. In Jesus, death is overcome. Now, we need to remind ourselves of the sin-death connection. And I know we've talked about this a little bit in the last couple of weeks, but it's, it bears repeating and reconsidering. So why is it that sin and death are connected to each other. What does death have to do with sin? Well, God's gift of life to us in the garden was a gift that was supposed to be met with grateful obedience in humble reliance upon him. We saw that last week in our brief study of foodology. When Adam was created, he was immediately told, here's the food you're going to need to live off from. He was created dependent upon God. Thus, when we in Adam responded to God's gift of life with defiance and disdain, God withdrew that gift of life. In other words, death is the, the, the logical consequence for sin. That is how death and sin are related and connected. And that's why Jesus' defeat of sin led to his defeat of death. That is why this meeting with the risen Jesus is significant. He defeated death. You know, this past Monday, I was talking with a man about the death of a close friend of his. In the midst of the conversation, he said, you know, I don't ordinarily go in on religion. I don't practice any faith. But when it comes to funerals, isn't that interesting? Isn't that telling? Here's this irreligious, ah-religious man. But when he's faced with death, he's driven to an understanding of his need for religion. Our society tends to want to minimize death. We're constantly trying to put the fun back in funeral. Why? Because by reducing the fear of death, we reduce our need for Jesus. 
It's the same problem Adam had in the garden. We don't want to be dependent upon God. We don't want to have to rely on him. And so if we make death a little less scary, we make Jesus a little less necessary. It's one of the reasons I keep trying to encourage you here in the church. Let's not minimize death. Let's mourn it for what it really is so that we appreciate Jesus for who he really is. Jesus didn't merely minimize death. He obliterated it. And he's alive to prove it. Here he is, walking and talking with these two like nothing ever happened. Because Jesus lived a perfect life, because he overcame sin, and because he paid the price for sin, he thus overcame death. Because he has come to redeem others from sin, those whom he redeems will also overcome death. Now, most of us will not avoid death, but we will escape it. One day, while under death's sway, we will be brought back, redeemed from death, and made alive. And and when that happens, death will be no more. Its power and reign of terror will be thrown down and destroyed. Jesus was alive on that road that day, Because one of the corollaries to redemption from sin is redemption from death. The second necessarily follows from the first. What did Jesus come to do? Not to address the things that bother us, but to address the thing that bothers God and to pay for our sin. What difference does that make? Those who are redeemed by believing in him will also overcome death. What question number three? What will this resurrection, this overcoming of death, look like? What will the resurrected life be like? Well, I've entitled the sermon, Feasting Forever. And by that, I don't mean literally that we will only ever eat, but rather feasting here is a metaphor for all of the best and good things of life. I'm going to make a very mundane statement that has unbelievably profound consequences. After his resurrection, Jesus lived. I know some of you at this moment are feeling like you want to yell out, Duh! Come on, pastor, that's what the word resurrection means! You live after death. But I want you to understand the implications of that. What do we have Jesus doing here in the aftermath of his resurrection? It's interesting. In one sense, the gospel accounts of the resurrected Jesus are profoundly ordinary and mundane. He talked with friends. He walked around. He ate. He ate. Actually, it's interesting. Eating is a shockingly high-profile activity in the accounts of the resurrected Jesus. Look down to the part we didn't read. Look down uh, to verses 41 and 42. 
Let me set the stage. So these two disciples that we did meet, they have gone back. They are with the 11 and some of the others, and all of them are retelling their various encounters that day. So Peter is probably telling about seeing the empty tomb. Mary is recounting how she encountered this gardener, Jesus. Um, These two are telling about their dinner with Jesus. Suddenly, Jesus himself appears in the room, and he scares the stuffing out of all of them. He then shows him his hands and his feet to convince him that it is he, and he lets them touch him to show that he is physical and not merely spirit. Then verse 41. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Why does Luke record such a seemingly mundane detail? And it's not just Luke. In John's account of the resurrected Jesus, he actually provides uh, the story of how Jesus goes to the, to the Sea of Galilee and, in, and instructs the fishermen among the, the, uh, the eleven how to catch more fish. In other words, how to have more sustenance, how to get more food. And then he makes breakfast and eats with them. It's amazing if you start to look at the little bit of information we have about the resurrected Jesus, how much of it is food-focused. And in fact, Luke's reference to food, it's almost gratuitous. It's like out of place. You're like scratching your head going, what is it doing there? What's it got to do with anything? Because resurrected life is life. Just as the pre-fall, pre-sin, pre-death Adam still needed food, he still needed sustenance, he still needed to be reliant and dependent upon God, so the resurrected Jesus still needs food, he still needs sustenance, he will still be reliant upon God. We are not resurrected to be gods. We are resurrected to be what we were supposed to be, a people dependent upon a perfect provider we are still going to eat. We are still going to need God's sustenance for all of eternity. That's why these references to food, which can seem at first out of place, are here. It's to remind us that resurrection to life means life. Now, some of you will say, then, what's the big deal? If, the resur- if resurrection to life is simply just this life, then why all the brouhaha? Why all the hubbub over resurrection? Well, stop and step back and look at the, what's missing from the resurrection accounts. As the evangelists reflect back on their time with Jesus, as Luke researches the time others had with Jesus, it's striking what's not in their collective memories. There is no reference, so far as I could find or remember, to conflict, hardship, negativity. As the gospel writers reflect years later and record their memories, the clashes with the Pharisees are gone. The encounters with the lame beggars, gone. Doubts, fears, anxiety, they're there briefly and then quickly wiped away. Resurrected life is life, but it's life without the difficulty. Life without the thorns and thistles. 
Life without the hardship. Life without the curse of sin. It's all the best of this life without any of the difficulty. Feasting forever without having to expend the sweat of your brow to obtain that food. Back in the fall of 2021, the small group Bible study here at the church, we did a a really interesting, at least it was interesting to me, a memorable thought experiment. We spent, I don't know, I remember it was 30, 40 minutes, probably felt a lot longer than some of the others who were involved, sorry. but it was encouraging to me. We spent a little time doing this one little thought experiment. Try to imagine this world with just one change. Make just this one change. Everybody everywhere keeps the Eighth Commandment. You shall not steal. Everybody everywhere honors the personal property of others. You realize what a radical change that would make in this world? Those car keys you can never find, you wouldn't need them. The pins and passwords you can never remember, you wouldn't need them. Locks on your doors, gone. Wi-Fi passwords, not needed. Because nobody's going to steal your banking information when it's over the airwaves. Trademarks, copyrights, patents, no longer needed. The list goes on and on and on. Like I said, we spent 30 or 40 minutes brainstorming how radically different this world would be if the Eighth Commandment were kept. And that's only a tenth part of God's moral law. Imagine if all the moral law were kept perfectly. How radically different this world would be. That's the resurrection life we're looking forward to. If you're sitting there going, I don't want to be resurrected to this, you're not going to be resurrected to this. You're going to be resurrected to this minus everything bad. Plus all the good you can't even imagine yet. For think about it. If in this world full of egos, full of pride, full of selfishness, if in this world we were able to go to the moon then what are the heights to which we will ascend in a perfect world free from all evil? Resurrected life is life the way it was meant to be. The way we always wish it would be. And now you begin to see how our longings for what we wish Christ were then We wish he'd come to fix poverty. We wish he'd come to do this. We wish he'd come to do that. We wish he'd fix this and that and the other thing. All of those are going to be recognized. All of those are going to be given to us. But just as Christ had to take the path of suffering to reach the cross of glory, so we as his followers must for a time bear with our suffering, take up our crosses, and follow him. You see, if we are disappointed with what Jesus has done, it's because we want him to do what we wanted him to do. We want him to fix what bothers us. He fixed what bothered God so that we could be with God and then get all of the other things we want. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things 
will be added on to you. What did Jesus come to do? He came to save people from their sins. What difference, what's that got to do with his resurrected? Because he overcame sin, he overcame death. What's that resurrection life going to be like? It's going to be life restored to all that it should have been. So how do we get there? Or perhaps more to the point, how do we help others get there? How do we uh, 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 share this truth with other people? Three Christian songs taken from the 80s and 90s, decades which were formative for many of us. Three Christian songs. The first one here, I'm going to give you a little lyric sample out of each one. The first one leans kind of old school Southern gospel. All right, here's the lyrics from it. You're the only Jesus some will ever see. You're the only words of life some will ever read. So let them, it's hard not to break into singing it. So let them see in you the one in whom is all they'll ever need because you're the only Jesus some will ever see. Anybody recognize that? That familiar to anybody? A couple people. The rest of you were probably rocking out to Van Halen or something. I don't know. Second one. This one was a little more uh, easy listening, kind of almost elevator-esque. We are his hands. We are his feet. We are his people. Children of the Lord. You want to remember that chorus? White Heart, Steve Green. Sound familiar? You guys were doing disco to Abba, weren't you? Here's my last. And this one was decidedly Christian rock and roll. Seen and not heard. Seen and not heard. Sometimes God's children should be seen and not heard. There's too much talk and not enough walk. Sometimes God's children should be seen and not heard. I loved Petra. <laughs> I didn't love their hairdos so much, but I loved Petra. All three of these songs share a common theme, that Jesus is to be seen in us. You know, when we ask the question, how do we get people to know Jesus and hope in the eternal life he offers, it has often been said that Jesus must be seen in us who are his followers, and all of these songs make that point. One more quote, but it's not from a song rather from Francis of Assisi. Preach the gospel at all times. Use words when necessary. Okay, I see a few more recognition on your face there. All right, I'll let the others go. Since you knew Francis of Assisi, I'll let them go that you didn't know the other songs. But, you know, there it is. Preach the gospel at all times. Use words when necessary. Technically, it's a valid statement. Technically, it's a true statement. It's the way we interpret and apply it that gets us into some trouble. You see, those songs and that quote all tend to lead to the presupposition that Jesus can be known merely and only through us, his followers, period. That if people simply see Jesus in us, they will have what they need. Now, in light of this text, are we seeing the irony of that viewpoint? I mean, these disciples of Jesus are seeing him literally face-to-face. And they don't recognize Jesus in Jesus. If those who knew him directly did not recognize him in him, how do we expect the world to recognize Jesus in me? On its own, it's not going to happen. You know, we think 
that seeing Jesus is the key to a zealous faith. Jesus, hidden from them, thinks it most important, not that he first be revealed, but that the scriptures be revealed. And as much as we like to say that God's written word points to his incarnate word, here we have the incarnate word pointing to the written word. Now to be sure, don't get me wrong, Jesus himself says this in John 5, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The, the, the word of God must necessarily lead us to Jesus, or it has no hope for us. One has to find Jesus in this book. But let's not pretend for a moment that Jesus can be found apart from this book. You know, the question of how, how do we bring people to understand that there is feasting forever in, through faith in Jesus? We preach this book. We teach this book. We study this book. I met with Gideon's representative, the Gideon's representatives this week, and I was reminded of how many people have a testimony that goes something like this. I was on the verge of suicide, and I came across a Gideon Bible, and I began to read. And I am here today. I was in a hotel for yet another affair. And I stumbled across the Gideon Bible, and I began to read, and I found Jesus. It is the word of God which saves. Is it important that you and I live out the gospel? Absolutely. Jesus himself says they will know you are disciples by your love for one another. We must live out lives that are in obedience to God's word. But imagining that we can communicate the gospel with one approach or the other goes back to that old question, which wing of the airplane is more important? It ain't flying without both of them. Jesus turned to the Bible to make himself known to these two. Why would we imagine that we can do anything less? We must not be ashamed of the power of the word of God, for in it are the words of life. When Jesus turns to the twelve and says, are you going to leave me also? What does Peter say? Where would we go? For you alone, have the words of life. If we want to make Jesus known to this dark and dying world, we've got to make the Bible known to them. We've got to know it ourselves accurately, rightly, fully, so that we can talk about it accurately, rightly, and fully so that we can lead Bible studies in our workplaces, Bible studies in our homes, Bible studies in our neighborhoods so that people will see Jesus not finally in us, maybe first in us, but finally and fully in the word of God. That's how Jesus made Jesus known.
why would we think we would do it any other way? What did Jesus come to do? He came to save people from their sins. Not from the oppressions of this world here and now. What difference does that make? It means we have the hope of life. What will that life be like? That life will recognize all that we long for now. Freedom from oppression. Freedom from evil. Freedom from poverty. It will one day all come true. How? When we know Jesus through the word of God. Let's pray. Spirit of God, thank you for working in Luke to record this account that none of the others recorded. And thank you for making in it this clear picture of what it is Jesus came to do, what it is, uh, the, the, the risk of disappointment when we don't understand that properly. And for making known to us just the simple reality of, of the resurrected Jesus and the, the life of resurrection that we long for. And showing us also an example of how to make that known. Let us be a people who, who declare that Jesus came to save sinners. That, that declare that one day all that we long for will be fixed through him. And that declare all of this through the power of your word. We pray this in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen.